0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 as we continue through this series. We started last week, uh, Exodus, Faithful to Rescue. We're going to do this in two parts. Um, Halfway through the book we will switch and it will be not faithful to rescue but rescued to worship. And uh, we'll... We'll, uh, we'll switch there. We want to see what God is doing and has done in His people. And as Greg pointed out, uh, we are brought into that uh, through the gospel. The church is a part of that. We are included because of what God promised and has accomplished and will accomplish through Christ. I have one question for Greg, though. Just what does missional zeal smell like? Like, like, like hot dogs or, or what? What? You'll know it when you smell it. So, You never know what Greg's going to say when he gets up here. That's um, why I try not to have a lot of conversations with Greg ahead of time. I just let him go, you know, and then I'll, I'll just pick up the pieces afterwards, right? Uh, but uh, we do want to encourage you to, to give your life in some way to the service of the gospel here and among the nations. And if you would be interested in going to Peru, uh, attend that meeting after the service today. Well, let's as you're turning there, let me just, uh, just you know, I, I've sort of in a tongue-in-cheek way jokingly talked about how this series, Walking Through Exodus, with 40 chapters would last probably at least two years. We'll be here for at least two years. Well, last Sunday after the service, after lunch, we were standing in our kitchen and my daughter looked at me and said, let's be honest, it's going to take four years. So I sat down and I started doing the math this week, and I I looked, and at the the book of Exodus, there are 1,213 verses in Exodus. Last week we took seven. Lord willing, we'll take seven today. So at an average of seven verses per week, uh, that that is going to, you know, without taking holidays out, uh, that that averages out. It will take us 3.33 years. Uh, three years, four months to get through the, the book of, of Exodus. So uh, by the time you add in holidays and me being gone here and there or whatever, Abby, I think you are probably correct. It will probably take us four years, which means that when I'm finishing this, my son will be finishing his senior year in high school. So just let that settle in for a minute. And some of you just got weary and tired and went, Ooh. But I want you to know, I'm in it if you are. You know, we're going to be here anyway, right? What better thing could we give our lives to than to study the Word of God and to walk through it verse by verse and attempt by, with, with the Holy Spirit's direction to glean from the Word of God what He has saw fit for us to have? What better thing could you give your, your Sunday morning to? What better thing could we as a church give ourselves to than that? And so I want you to know I'm committed. We're going to walk through this. We'll take our time because we want to see what God has for us. So Exodus 1, let's begin in verse 8. Exodus 1 verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, the title I've given to this sermon, the one I've given to David for for the podcast is Fighting God or Fighting Against God. The one that I've listed out here on my paper, I didn't give to David, uh, is, is A New King's Solution to a Growing Problem. So whichever title you'd rather take is, is up to you. But what we're going to see here is we, last week we looked at the history of how Jacob and his sons, Joseph and all of his brothers got to Egypt. We covered that in detail, so I won't go back with you over a lot of that this morning. But now we're going to see that in, in one verse, things shift drastically. And before I dive into the text, I have two points for you today. But before I dive in, it's important that we come at this Come at Exodus with a proper perspective. Uh, Moses is the author of Exodus, and we have to ask ourselves, why did Moses write Exodus? Well, remember, Moses is writing because he wants the generations after him to remember that God was indeed faithful to rescue and that they were rescued to worship. And so we have to come at that. That should, that should shape what we see in the text. And so this morning I have two points for you. I think out of this text there are certainly more, but I'll try to stick with those two. The first of which is this, God's blessings often bring about the world's cursings. God's blessings often bring about the world's cursings. In verse 8, there arose a new king who did not know Joseph. That one verse sums up how the children of Israel went from a position of favor to a position of disgrace. From a position where they were a protected people in a foreign land with with connections in the high levels of government to working as slaves in that foreign land. Their lives miserable. This one verse, they come under severe oppression. They fall. This is, there could be so much more said about this, but in this one verse, we find that they, they fall. This king dies and. Another king rises or this king before is ousted and this new king comes into power and all of a sudden the situation changes. And on a, on a side note here, I think one of the things that we ought to be aware of, this ought to teach us is that we need to be careful that we don't put too much hope and trust and stock in whoever is in leadership in our government. The election of a new Pharaoh will not always fix all the problems. When we put our trust and our, and, our, and our hope in men, men will always disappoint us. Things will change. So God's blessings often bring about the world's cursings. Uh, it, it's not here when the Bible here says that this new king did not know Joseph. It's not as though this new king was ignorant of all of the history of his nation. It's more that he's choosing not to know Joseph. He's choosing not to remember, not to honor what this former pharaoh uh, had had established. Uh, The the pharaoh that, that Joseph had known was probably, historians tell us, an outsider. He was probably one of the Hyksos pharaohs that had been from a foreign land who had come into Egypt, conquered it and taken over the leadership of this nation. And those who were always had had lived in Egypt resented this Pharaoh until one day they mustered enough strength to be able to oust him, to overthrow this Pharaoh and throw him out. And so whoever this new king, this new Pharaoh is, he really probably has very little sympathy at all for the former regime and any alliances or any um, mercies that the former Pharaoh had allotted. He had ousted the Pharaoh, but... He had not ousted their, the people that this former Pharaoh had harbored. He had a problem. He had a big problem. The, the problem was the, ch- the children of Israel, and they were a growing problem. And they were growing by the day, and they didn't seem to be slowing down. And so now Israel's growth, we see, is part of God's blessing. We looked at this last week. I want to show you this. I want to go back to some of the history again and show you that Israel's growth is not by chance, but instead it's by the very work and blessing of God. It's God keeping His promise. We looked last week at the fact that in Genesis 1, verse 28, God said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply. Part of what God started was all the way back with Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, Be fruitful and multiply. When, when the population on the earth grew so wicked that God destroyed it in a flood, after Noah and his family came out of the ark, God again said to, to Noah, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 12, Genesis 15 and forward, God then extends that promise beyond Noah and he carries that promise over to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Listen to some of these passages as we walk through Genesis. Genesis 12, 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Genesis 15, 5. Abraham there is saying to God, God, I don't have a son yet. Who's going to be this heir? You've promised me this son, but he has not come yet. And God sends Abraham out into under the night sky and tells Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In Genesis 28, Isaac said to Jacob, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. In Genesis 35, 10 through 11, God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. In Genesis 47, verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Which brings us to Exodus 1, verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The literal Hebrew here says they grew and they were fruitful and they swarmed. They Swarmed. All of this we see is is part of God keeping His word. The last point of the sermon last week was God keeps His promises. I want you again to be reminded that Israel growing by leaps and bounds and then becoming this nation within a nation is not by happenstance. It's not because they are bored. It's not because they lived in the days before TV and and you know they, all these things. It is because God has made a promise. And God is now keeping his promise. Israel's growth was not by chance. It was the very blessing of God. While God's blessings are always good, the reaction from the world that they elicit are not. God's blessings are always good. We pray for God's blessings on our church. We pray for God's blessings on, on you individually. We pray for God's blessings on our nation they're always good, but in a world that is fallen and is not aligned with God and, and bring glory to Him, when you and I receive the blessings, blessings of God, oftentimes they elicit a negative response, a cursing, if you will, from the world. I want to walk through and just kind of talk with you a little bit about why this is. Number one, why does the world react the way they do when to toward the children of God? Well, number one, God's blessings often threaten a a corrupt and a self-centered culture. A culture that says, I want to do what I want to do. We talked about this in, in Sunday school this morning. A culture that says, live and let live. The culture that thinks that they are the authority of their life. When when a child of God lives according to the principles of God and experiences the blessing of God and then turns that blessing back toward God in praise, it it reminds this person who does not know the Lord that there is someone or something that is over them that they must answer to, that they are not the final be-all and end-all of their life that it's not okay for them just to do as they want, to follow their conscience, to follow their heart, but instead there is something beyond them that they must answer to when you and I, who are children of God, live accordingly and, and, and filter that praise back to God. And so they react violently to it. They don't like that. You, at one time, didn't like that. The gospel is offensive, But it's never meant for us to be offensive intentionally. When when God's people live with these blessings and they direct these blessings back to God, what it does is it applies pressure to an open and an empty wound. That open and empty wound is, is this wound that sin has inflicted. And when you and I live according to the principles of God and, and, and exercise faith in Christ and live differently than what the world has, has put out there for us is the right way to live. When we live in such a way that we glorify God through our living, they may not admit it, but it's, 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 the picture I can give you is of someone with an open wound and someone taking their finger and just pressing into that wound. It's an open wound that sin has inflicted, and they know it. A person without God in their heart knows that something's not right. They may fight for and claim for their right to do whatever they want to do, that there is no God, that I can do whatever I want. But in their heart, they know something's not right. This is why you can go anywhere in the world and find a people who have never heard the gospel, never seen a Bible, know nothing of the name of Jesus, and they will be worshiping someone or something because they know something inside tells them there is something greater. I am a sinner. I do owe something to God. And when a Christian lives following Christ to the glory of God, it presses on that wound. When you and I live in such a way that it is obvious that we have a relationship with God and we claim that relationship is only through Christ, it draws attention to the fact that they feel so distant from God. And they wonder why they can't have what you have. And some of them, some of them, by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, turn their attention to him and they will listen and they will turn from their sin and they will trust Christ they will profess faith in him and they will be saved, but others without the gospel react violently to it and they lash out. They look at, at the Christian and they say, Oh, they got to be making that up. Who made them God? Why are they so holy? If you want examples of this, look to those who have publicly stated and lived their faith in, in the eyes of the camera in America. Tim Tebow was raked over the coals because he would kneel in the end zone after he scored a touchdown. And thank God for the ability that God had given him to do such a thing. And for such a simple act, he was raked over the coals. Why? Why is that so offensive to someone that they feel they have to speak out against it? My daughter was talking to us this weekend about someone at, at, at school who posted somewhere online that, that uh, there was no God and if you believed in God, you were, you were, you were foolish and God's dead and all these sort of things. If, if, if I truly believe that there is no God, then why am I so offended by someone claiming there is? See, the reality is when you and I live under the blessings of God, the ultimate blessing of God, of him sending Christ and saving us from our sins, then it presses in on that wound, and it reminds of sin, and it reminds of emptiness to the point where people without the gospel either lash out or they're made alive by the Spirit to receive that gospel. God's blessings are often, they often result in the world's cursings. This is what happened when God sent Jesus. Now think about this. Could there have been any more, anybody more more humble, more loving, more innocent than Jesus. God sent his own son. And what they do with him? They hated him. They hated him because of the relationship that he had with the father. They hated him to the point where they arrested him, they beat him, they nailed him to a tree and crucified him. This is what we're going to see that this new king in Egypt does with these children of Israel. They live under the blessing of God and they're multiplying and and he can't figure out why and it threatens his very kingdom and so he has to do something. He reacts violently because of the blessings that they are receiving from God. Child of God in this room today, listen to me. If you're living under the blessings of God, we should never expect a life of ease in this world. Jesus said, if they... Hated me, they will hate you all the more. We should not be surprised when the world reacts as they do. Which brings me to a question. I hesitate on this because the text doesn't go here. But if you'll give me a little bit of, I guess, spirit, I hope spirit-inspired freedom here this morning, I would simply want to ask you this, if you are living in this life under the blessings of God, but you are not experiencing the persecution of the world and the reaction of the world that's described here, then what does it say about how you are receiving those blessings? Are you simply receiving those blessings, not in a way that you turn the praise and the glory back to God, but instead you're hoarding those blessings for yourself and forgetting to praise the one who's given them to you? Because if that's the case, the world has no reason to hate you. Oh, they may think sometimes you are you're the luckiest person alive. How do you have what you, what you have? They may want to be around you hoping to be able to pick up some of the crumbs that are falling from your life. But they will have no reason to hate you because you are not giving any of the glory back to God. Child of God, we should not seek to live a life in this world that is Free from trouble. I'm not saying that we should go out and look for trouble. I'm not saying that we should go out and try to offend as many non-believers as we possibly can. Those people are out there and they are not a badge of honor to the glory of Christ. Instead, they are a blight on the church and his glory. I'm not saying that we should go out and look for that. But I am saying that it ought to be there from time to time. This idea that God wants us happy is a lie from the pit of hell. Those who, are, who, those who are saying those things of God wants you to be happy, if you just come to Christ, God wants, to, wants you to be happy and he wants to give you everything that, that, that you want, they don't even know it, but the words that are coming out of their mouth are first whispered to them out of the mouth of the, of the enemy. child of God, we should thank God for his blessings, especially the the blessing of Christ to save us, especially the, the moment where we were dead in our sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us, and he made us alive. And the gospel went from being offensive to being the sweetest news we had ever heard in our life. We should thank God for that blessing. But we should not be surprised when the world turns and curses us when we do. God's blessings often bring about the world's cursings, but here's the second point. The world's oppression only serves God's plans. The world's oppression only serves God's plans. Now, I want to walk through this because the new king had to regain control of Israel by stopping their growth. And the rest of our passage is going to walk through those plans. It's going to outline his plans. So I just want to give some detail to the thought of a world, this king here being representative of the one who is now ruling this world system, the devil himself. And I want to show you some things. I want you to take notice of some things of how this world will react when you and I live to the glory of God. Exodus 1, verses 9 through 10 He said, the king said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Just a few things in those two verses. When the king here says they are too many and too mighty for us, it reveals what the real threat is. There's the threat. It threatens his kingdom as he knows it. He looks at them and he says, if they only realize who they are, they will overtake us. Their growth was a threat to his kingdom. Notice that he starts by using words to incite fear, even if those words are pretty ridiculous. I mean, we're talking not here about some small power in Egypt. We're talking about the most powerful nation in the world at that time with the most dominant military anywhere around. The threat of war was not a real threat at all, but he knew that he had to somehow gain the favor of his people to back him in what he was going to do to these these Israelites. And so he begins to use words to incite fear. He begins to say, these people are different than us. Look at them. They're foreigners. They've come in. And if they realize what they are, they might join with other enemies when they attack us and we would be overthrown which on a side note here, we've got to be very aware in this day and age when our borders are in America are um, seemingly very open to um, those coming in from the outside legally and illegally. We've got to be very careful that we're not guilty of this very thing because the mistreatment, the mistreatment of people who are not like us, the mistreatment of, of immigrants is Sin plain and simple it is sin now i'm all for laws to, to to put laws on record and to enforce those laws i'm all for those laws but we as a believer have a responsibility to treat people with kindness and love and to respect them because those people regardless of who they are or where they are from they are made in the image of god we have that responsibility we have that privilege. Our God is a God who feeds and cares for the sojourner, the foreigner in the land. If we're going to be like our God, then we must do the same. We must, I think, in, in the election, uh, in, in where where policy and law is made. I think we fight for those things. We fight for laws. We fight for all that. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty of dealing with people, we love people. You hear me? This is what we are called to do. The king here says they are too many and they're too mighty for us. It's a threat to his kingdom as he knows it. He said we've got to deal shrewdly with them. This word shrewdly, the, the, it's in the same family and it's only, other, only used one other place in, in the Bible. And it is the word that is used of the serpent when he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. What I want you to see here is that, that this king, it's, it's not just this king against Israel, but this is, he he represents here something much larger in this ongoing battle between Satan and God himself. He's acting just like his father, Satan. Jesus is the one who said to the Pharisees in John 8:44, you are. Of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. We see this here in this king, well before Jesus takes on flesh and comes to the earth. This king here said, Lest they multiply and escape from the land. Well, in saying that, In saying we've got to deal shrewdly because we don't want them to multiply anymore and we don't want them to escape the land, he is unwittingly, unknowingly identifying and aligning himself against the two very promises of God. God had promised that they would multiply and become a great nation, and he had promised that he would give them a land of their own. And here he says, maybe unknowingly, we cannot let them multiply and we cannot let them go to a land that is outside of ours. And he sets himself up, he aligns himself with Satan himself. And the point here I'll just make to you briefly as I run by it is that you and I, when we live in this world, with the blessings of God, turning those blessings back to God, to his praise and his glory, and the world reacts with violence, we've got to see beyond them and understand that we're not fighting them, we are fighting the world system that is behind their actions. That's what Ephesians 6 is all about when Paul told us to put on the whole armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 11, the story goes on. The the king, the new king, apparently wins over his, his nation against the Israelites. And in verse 11, they begin their plan. They begin to implement this plan to keep them from multiplying and keep them from leaving. In verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. Now, you have to understand that these Israelites were not construction workers. They were mostly farming people. They were shepherds. They were contract herders that had been allowed to stay in this sort of northern region of Egypt where they were watching people's flocks. They were tending to those things. And so all of a sudden they are ripped out of that context and forced into construction labor where they are building these cities for Pharaoh, these military store cities, this royal city. They're building it from the ground up. And not only are they building, but they are now having to supply the, the materials as well. Many of them are making bricks. They've been made slaves. They've been put under this caste system where they are now the lowest people on the, on the totem pole in Egypt. They, they have no influence whatsoever, and they're made to work extremely hard. The strategy here from this new king, bear with me, is this. It's threefold. Number one, he wants to separate them from their families as much as he possibly can. If they're working all the time, then they won't have as much time. Husbands won't have as much time to be with with their wives. Mothers won't have as much time to be with their children. And so there will be very little time to to conceive children, and there will be very little time to nurture those children. And so in doing so, in in establishing and putting this heavy burden of labor on them, he's hoping to cut down on the number of children that come out of, of this nation within a nation. Secondly, he's hoping to starve them, because if they're always working, they have very little time to come home and tend to their own fields and to their own flocks. They're too tired to do so. They can't produce the food that they need for living, and so he's hoping not only will we cut down on the number of children, but we will now starve many of them out because they will not have time to raise their own crops, their own food. And the third strategy in this is just a sheer workload that will kill many of them off. He's going to work them so hard that many of them will die under this slavery. It's what's meant here when Moses conveys the the weight of this burden. They afflict them with heavy burdens. But his plan wasn't going according to his plans as quickly as he thought it should. And when the population of the Israelites didn't begin to diminish or decrease, instead it it continued to multiply and increase, they were still a growing people, then the answer was, let's turn up the heat. And that's what's meant there in the last part of verse 12, where it says that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly, listened to these These words that describe the burden, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Moses doesn't want us to to miss the suffering that the Israelites endured. Now, child of God, in in these first few chapters of Exodus, you're going to hear lots of talk about suffering. And I don't mean to to take us somewhere in a fabricated way, but I think think the text, I think God's word is taking us here. Moses doesn't want us to miss the suffering that they endured. He doesn't want us to, to walk away just having read through this. Instead, he wants us to feel it. He wants us to feel in some way what they endured. What they endured was terrible. What they, what they endured was wrong. Many of them did die under the weight of slavery. But God continued to increase. But it must have felt like at times that there was never going to be an end. I mean, for all these years this went on and it must have felt like God, when are you going to send this Deliverer? God, when are you going to save us out of this? When are you going to rescue us? Some of you right now are in the middle of something in your life, and you're saying, God, when? I don't think it's wrong for us to say, God, when? I don't think it's wrong for us to say, God, why? As long as we're not saying it in such a way that we've set ourselves as being over and above God. If you look at most of the psalms, most of the psalms are, are, are th- those types of questions. My God, why? My God, when? Will you, will you send a deliverer? Save me from my enemies. Most of the psalms are that way. And I think probably these Israelites are feeling all of that during this. And I want you to notice something else that as we walk through these first 14 verses of, of the book of Exodus... God has not been mentioned once. God will be mentioned in the next few verses, but he will be mentioned in such a way as to have sort of really not a very active role at all. Instead, these midwives fear him and he rewards them for their fear of him. But really throughout the whole first chapter, God is not mentioned at all. And I don't think Moses is doing that haphazardly. I don't think the Spirit is leading Moses to do that in a way that it just doesn't mean anything. I think instead it's there to remind us just how the Israelites felt under this weight of this heavy burden. It felt as if God wasn't there. And some of you are there at that point right now. You think, God, where are you? I want you to hear what the rest of the book of Exodus will tell us. That even in the suffering, God is accomplishing his plan. That God has a purpose even in your suffering at this point. God had a purpose in their suffering then, and he has a point in your suffering now. Despite the king's conventional wisdom of loading this burden on them, And when that didn't work, to pile it on even more, the children of Israel continued to grow. See, God uses suffering and still accomplishes his purposes. The king thought, this will be the way that I will regain control of Israel. Look, I will get them, the conventional wisdom says. I will just work them to the point where they can't. They cannot have any more children. They're going to starve to death. They're going to die under the weight of this burden. And every day he would go out and he would say, how's the plan working? And they would report, not so good. There have been more babies born, king. The people just continue to grow. They continue to flourish. They're multiplying. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. See, to this point, the new king had them localized in a little region of Goshen. But the text here seems to indicate that when he applies this suffering, this oppression to the people of God, that now they've multiplied to the point where they, don't, they can't fit in Goshen anymore. Now they're beginning to spread out into the other parts of his kingdom. And the very thing he set out to do was put down by God. We should not be surprised by this because 1 Corinthians 1.19 said, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God had already said to these that would go to Egypt in Genesis 46, verse 3, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. See, it would not have mattered what this new king tried to do. Whatever strategy he came up with, he did not realize that he had picked a fight with God. And picking a fight with God is a God that you will always lose. I've been in very few fistfights in my life. I A couple of fistfights when I was in middle school, there were more shoving matches and pretty ridiculous than fistfights. I was not very coordinated in in, in, in school I know I've grown out of that now you know but um, um, I remember in, in PE class one time we were playing pickup basketball and there was this kid and he was he was not very good at basketball and I thought I was better than he was but he was big and I don't know what what got into me but I thought every time he comes into pain I'm just going to hit him I'm just going to lower into him and I'm just going to I'm just going to shove him out well he put up with it for just a little bit But it wasn't long until he set me in my place. See, what the king didn't realize is that he was going up against not just some bully on a basketball court in a middle school gymnasium. He was waging war against the God of the universe. And this world comes at God and thinks we can put him down. God doesn't exist. God is dead. And they don't realize he's as live, he, he is as, as alive as he has ever been. He will never die. He never had a beginning, and he will never have an end. He controls the heavens. He controls this universe. He controls everything that exists because everything that exists exists because he created it out of nothing, and he holds it together, and he will bring it to its appointed end, Colossians says. Sometimes we get in the middle of suffering, and and we begin to live under the blessings of God, and it's wonderful, but it elicits a response from the world that is not what we thought, and they begin to curse us, and they begin to oppress us. But don't ever, don't ever think that you are some victim, because God is sovereign even over your suffering, and he will use even your suffering to bring about what is needed in your life. Charles Spurgeon said this, In order to cut loose the bonds that bound them to Egypt, the sharp knife of affliction must be used. And Pharaoh, though he knew it not, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world and helping them as his church to take up their separate place in the wilderness and receive the portion which God had appointed for them. Church, hear me. All these thousands of years later, you and I stand here and our God has not changed. Sometimes suffering will come into the life of a believer and don't ever think for a minute that it is because God has taken a break. God knows exactly what you're going through and God will use it to his own glory and to your own good. Philip Graham Ryken said, suffering helps us look for our Savior. If we never have any trouble along the journey, we would never have any reason to long for heaven. So in conclusion, I know I'm out of time, but here's here's just wrapping this up. In one verse, verse 8 of chapter 1 of Exodus, the people of God go from a position of favor to disgrace. They fall. The people that once revered them and protected them are gone, and now they are the scum of society. And They are used as slaves to accomplish the, the whims of this worldly king. But God never intended Egypt to be the promised land. See, if they'd been left in their comfortable lives there in Egypt, they may have simply just melted into the Egyptian culture and just disappeared and gone away. They would have possibly lost their covenantal identity and would have never been heard from again. And guess what? For you and I, no Messiah, no Christ. Because what was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what was promised to Noah, and what was promised to Adam and Eve was not simply about making them a nation, but it was ultimately about bringing about the Messiah, the one who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. See, left to their own devices, their own comfortable lives. They may have just melted into the Egyptian culture and faded away, but God is so committed to his purposes. As one commentator wrote, so committed to growing us in grace that he will spare no effort and he will spare no hardship necessary to that task and that goal. Ligon Duncan said, God grows his people through suffering, and in suffering we must never see ourselves as victims of our earthly persecutors because God's promise is always greater than that persecution. God's blessings may bring about the world's cursings, but take hope, child of God. The world's cursings only serve to bring about God's plan." Live your life under the blessings of God and do so in such a way that you turn them back on him that he might receive all the glory. Trust him to the end. Long for heaven, knowing that he has promised heaven and he will deliver heaven. It is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word, how unified it is and how it all tells this one story that Exodus is just a, another chapter in your big story of redeeming a people to yourself, of redeeming all of creation, of reversing the curse that sin brought about. Lord, we thank you for that. God, I pray that for those who are here, my brothers and sisters who are in the middle of some suffering this morning, God, I pray That you would give them the grace to endure that just as the Israelites felt it, they had to endure and many of them died under the weight of it. God, I pray that you would give brothers and sisters in this room this morning the grace to endure. Knowing that even if it means that the suffering they endure takes their life in this world, it will not stop your plans to bring about the next one. God, give them that hope and that assurance. Help us to know, God, that the oppression of the world serves your purpose. God, be glorified, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond. You've heard the word. You've heard a call to trust the Lord in whatever's coming your way. Now, if you're here this morning and you know how you need to respond, then by all means respond. Maybe maybe you're here and you just need to spend some time praying, thanking God for his blessings. Maybe it's praying, God, I want to endure. I want to trust you, Lord. Give me the grace to endure. Maybe you're here today and you don't know this hope. You don't know the hope of the gospel. Because you've never turned from your sin, admitting to God that you are a sinner lost without him, deserving death and hell you've never turned and trusted the provision that he made in Christ you've never seen and savored and received the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent then today we invite you I'll be seated right here on the front row love for you to come and, and begin to talk with me I'd love to lead you to Christ and how you can trust him and be saved today if if there something going on and you just need some brothers or sisters to pray with you there will be people in a prayer room through those doors and out to the left whatever it is that God is calling you to today respond respond in obedience finish this sermon today finish it by obeying it whatever God leads you to say yes don't harden your heart say yes to him today Let's respond as we worship to Him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.